God bless you all. I too hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you would please take out your Bibles and open them with me. We are in Romans chapter 9 today. Romans chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service. Romans chapter 9. You know, it is, as we, as we sang the, the, the words of that song, it is, it is so important that, that we embrace what it is that we just sang. God, would you have your way in us? We want to know you. We don't want to enhance our sometimes twisted version of who we think you are, God. We want to know who you are. We want to know, know more about you, the true and living God, you know? The more we do that, the more God just stirs in our heart this desire for more and more of him. We, Paul came to that. Paul came to that realization. He recorded in Philippians chapter 4, I count all things, everything to that point, everything in his life, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The value of knowing Jesus surpassed everything else in his life, knowing who God is. And it's interesting because we've all probably had conversations with people and even probably wrestled with things in our own hearts from time to time in our, in our faith walk that says, and we question God. You ever heard, heard people perhaps say, you know what, I don't have a problem believing in a God of love, but I have a problem believing in a God who would allow this to happen or allow that to happen. And maybe you've even come to that point in your life, okay, I, I believe in the God who saved me, but I struggle with a God who would allow this thing to come into my life. I won't believe in a God like that. The problem is with that is that is how God reveals himself to us in Scripture. He is sovereign, he is over all things and nothing happens. It's not that he causes bad things, but he allows those things to happen in our, in our world for his purposes. And we talked in Romans 8.28 that, that he causes all things, good things, bad things, disastrous things, that from our point of view, he causes all those things to work together for good because he is sovereign, because he is in control. The problem is in, in our lives or in anyone's life, if we take, take the, the things that we like about God and we make that and, and we leave other things out and say, well, that's not my God, the Bible calls that one thing idolatry. Making God in our image, making God into something that, that we can fully comprehend and understand. Let me just again, I, I say this often, but it is so true. If God were a God that we could fully comprehend and understand, if, he, if, his level, if his level was on a level that I could get, he wouldn't be worth me worshiping. He is so far above and beyond us. And that is what Paul says. The more I know, the more I understand, the more I realize that I will never fully comprehend his greatness, his glory, his, his power, his love. The more I understand of what I don't fully comprehend, the more I realize the surpassing value of it. And I say that as we, as we step into the second half of chapter 9, because chapter 9 does carry in it some, some difficult things. 
There are some, there are some truths about God in chapter nine that at a first reading, and I, as I challenged you all last week, I hope you have, read chapters nine, 10, and 11, and do that a few times over the next few weeks because they need to be taken as a whole. But as we go through chapter nine, there's some things that are said in here that at just reading them, we're like, man, that is, that's hard to grab a hold of. And the truth of the matter is, it is hard. And some of the things that are revealed in there, we have to accept and embrace by faith. Paul, as he begins chapter 9, and we discussed this last week, on the heels of coming out of chapter 8, where we talk about these glorious truths that are ours, that we own, that we know, that are ours as believers. He says that he has great sorrow in his heart because his countrymen, his brethren, the Jewish people, for, for the most part, has rejected Jesus as their Messiah and therefore are not, are not partakers of this great and glorious promises that are ours in chapter 8. And he said so much so, as his heart burdened for them, he said that I would be separated from Christ if I could be accursed so that they could all be saved. And he goes on to explain that, that it's not because God's word failed. It's not because God failed or changed. And that is so important because if God is not faithful to his old covenant, Old Testament prom promises, what makes us think that he would be faithful to the new covenant, New Testament promises to us? So Paul goes on in the beginning of chapter 9 saying it's not just because you're a descendant of Abraham that makes you a child of God. And he drew that out, and he said he drew, made the comparison between Ishmael and Isaac and, the, and Esau and Jacob. And we finished last time with that very difficult verse. It is verse 13, where it says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we talked about that last week. And we, we started into verses 14 and following. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? And I want to pick up there today and continue on moving forward from there because here we are, we are in the middle of this, of this difficulty thing that God, sovereign God, makes choices. And in our limited understanding, our first response is just like this one here in verse 14. Is, does that mean God is not just? Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Notice, may it never be. He can't be more emphatic when he says absolutely not. No, no, a thousand times no. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on man who wills or man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason, for, or I'm sorry, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. God can't be unjust. It goes against his very nature. God himself is just. He is righteous. And to say that any part of him, even the smallest part, or even one decision of his was unjust or unrighteous would be blasphemy, coming against the very character and nature of God. He uses, and as we look at these, if you look at the, the grammatical structure as it's set up here, verse 15 begins with the word for, verse 16, so then, verse 17, for, verse 18, so then. So he gives a couple of these because, and then this is what it means, statements as he moves, as he moves through this. And he gives us two examples to illustrate the point that God absolutely is not unjust in what he does. The first example he gives in verses 
15 and 16 is speaking of the children of Israel. And if for your homework, if you want to read the entire story, it's Exodus 32 and 33. But most of us are familiar at least with the scene and the setup as to how we get to this scene. The children of Israel are in the, out in the wilderness. They've been miraculously rescued by God from the, their, the, the slavery in Egypt, brought through the Red Sea out into the wilderness, and now they are at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses up on top of Mount Sinai, speaking with God, getting the Ten Commandments from him. He's up there a little while, and guess what's starting to go on down in the camp? They start talking. They go to Aaron. They say, Moses has been gone for a little while. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Moses has been gone a while. We don't know what's happened to him. Man, we see a whole lot of, of lightning and hearing the thunder and a whole lot of rumbling going up on the hill, but he hasn't come down. We, he might be dead. We don't know what to do now. Make us a God. So they, he says, okay, well, bring me all of your gold, all of your earrings. So they bring all of that stuff and they throw it into the, into the fire. They bring it, they melt it down. They fashion the golden calf. They put it up. They all worship it. They sacrifice to it. And up on top of the mountain, God says to Moses, after he's given him the Ten Commandments and everything, you're not going to believe what is going on down there. <laughs> they have already turned against me. After everything I've done, after every way that I have proven to them who I am, my power, after providing for them, after protecting them, after answering their prayer and delivering them, they have already turned away from me. Moses goes down the mountain. You know what happens? He breaks the Ten Commandments. He grinds the golden calf into powder. He says to Aaron, what in the world are you doing? And Aaron's response is, well, <laughs> um, you wouldn't believe it. Um, kind of wondering what to do, where, where we're going with this whole thing. So I had everybody bring the gold. We threw it in the fire, and you wouldn't believe it, but out came a calf, a golden calf. Well, the wrath of God was displayed tells us that the Levites went through the camp and they killed 3,000 men. Now, was God unjust in executing that judgment on those men? No. God wasn't unjust. The holy, holy God of the universe, not unjust in dealing with the rebellion that came against him, the treason against him in that way. The, the thing that blows us away about the story is as we continue to read, Moses goes back up on the mountain with God. And he says, God, if you are going to, if you're going to leave us here, if you're not going to continue to go before us and be our God, be our protector, we, we're not moving. We're not going anywhere. And God said to Moses, I will go with you. I will protect you because you have found favor with me. And then Moses asks this question of God. He says, show me your glory. And that is where we come to our verse that Paul is quoting here. All of that to lead up to verse 19 of chapter 33 of Exodus. And then he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. It's, it's an amazing thing when we look at the story. It's, it's, it's not that God, it, it was God unjust. No, he was unbelievably merciful to extend mercy to all of those who had turned their back on him, who had worshiped this golden calf. 
And he, he, he draws this conclusion as we see in verse 16. It doesn't depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It's not, it's not, mercy is not dependent on the person who needs mercy and asks for it. Mercy is dependent on the one who gives it. Mercy is not something that is earned. It's not based on something that is done. Mercy is a gift from the giver of mercy. He goes on to give a second example in verses 17 and 18. For, again, here's our, here's our example. The scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. Now we have to go back a little further in Exodus. We go back to the beginning of Exodus and we see the story of Moses as he is brought up from a, as a child, even in the household of Pharaoh grows up and you know that he, he saw an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew slave so he kills the Egyptian, then word gets out and, and he has to flee and he, he runs away into the, into the wilderness and he's there for 40 years. Well, meanwhile, the Pharaoh, that, the young one that was, he was growing up with now is in power. God intervened in both of their lives, Moses' and Pharaoh's and he gave ample opportunity to both of them to humble themselves to, to follow after God. And we see Moses doing that, humbling himself. He left a proud murderer, comes back a humble shepherd in, in God's service. But we see also this Pharaoh grew arrogant and grew proud. And he felt that he was the most powerful thing in the universe. That nothing was more powerful than him. And who is your God telling me to do any of this? And it tells us that God, in order to display his power, to prove that he was all-powerful, not Pharaoh, and to make his name famous, he drowned the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And it did make his name famous. It proved who was, who was all-powerful. Pharaoh lost every time, 0 for 11. And prove, his name became famous. We see that. We go ahead into the book of, of Joshua. Where when they get to Jericho, Rahab the harlot tells the spies, we know all about you and your God. Word has traveled all over. Nobody wants a piece of you guys because of the power of your God. It's interesting though. God says that that was, the, that was what he desired. That, his, that he would show his power and that his name would become famous. But God works even to the same to the same end result in different ways in different people. God is not bound to a formula. We see the same, the same God dealing with another proud, arrogant king in a totally different way, ending in the same result. When we look at Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's king, he's the ruler of the world at the time. And through Daniel, God told Nebuchadnezzar, everything that you have is because I gave it to you. Yet, Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4 of Daniel, looks over his whole kingdom, sees everything that he says, and he goes, look at what I have built. Look at what I have done. And God said, oh yeah? <laughs> and for seven years after that point, God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, so much so that he, he crawled around on his hands and knees and ate grass like the cows. And he slept with the cows. And his fingernails grew long. And all of this kind of stuff totally humbled him. The king, of the, the king of the world humbled like a cow in the pasture for seven years until he cried out to God and humbled himself, humbled his heart before God. And then it says that he gave all glory to God, showing again that no, God is all-powerful 
and making his name famous in all of the land. God dealt with it in different ways. So is God unjust because of the way he dealt with Pharaoh? Of course not. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will harden whom he will harden. Verse 18. Verse 19, though, brings that next question that comes after that. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, verse 20, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and, so, and he did so to make the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Now, you can tell as Paul states this here in verse 19, he, he's asking that this question is asked. The way he answers it, you can tell that this isn't Paul's first time hearing an objection like this. He's gone around. He's been, he's been sharing the gospel in town to town, village to village, coming against opposition everywhere he went. No doubt hearing this question over and over as he has shared this truth about God, that sovereign almighty God makes choices. And so he, he asks this question, well, if God, almighty, all-powerful God makes these choices, how can he find fault in me for, for what I do in my life? And you can tell by his answer that he knows the heart behind that isn't one that is truly seeking God. It's a heart that's looking to shift blame. Can't hold me accountable, can't hold me responsible if almighty God made, it, made me this way. But isn't that in the very nature of all of us in our flesh? I mean, it goes all the way back to the beginning, to the first sin. When God comes, God comes to the garden and to Adam and Eve, he says, what have you done? And Eve said, the devil made me do it, right? It was the serpent. And Adam one-ups her. God, it was the woman you gave me. Blaming his wife and God for the problem. Not taking the accountability or the responsibility. And no doubt that is the heart behind this question. And that's why Paul answers it the way that he does. <laughs> Who are you, O oh man, created being, to answer back to God? By the way, if you ever see a job offering, a job opening for Supreme Judge of the Universe... <laughs> don't apply. Because in order to be the supreme judge of all of the universe, you need to be all-knowing. You need to know everything. And regardless of what you might think, you don't. <laughs> you need to be all-powerful. Be able to control everything yourself. You need to be everywhere at the same time, all the time. You need to be eternal. No beginning, no end. You need to be completely unbiased. You have to be unchanging. You have to be completely self-sufficient and perfect in character and judgment. None apply, none qualified, not even in one area. There's only one almighty, all-powerful God. 
And when we bring questions like this, even in our hearts, even in what the, the recesses of our mind, when we question God in these things, he knows. And who are we to do that? And that's what Paul is, is outlining here. You know, Paul says elsewhere in, in, in the New Testament that what we hold in our hand, yes, it is the living word of God, but it, God has preserved it. He has for our instruction. And you know, instruction is for our learning. <laughs> if we don't learn anything from it, instruction is kind of a waste, right? And you've probably heard that, that one of the best tutors, one of the best teachers, one of the best ways we can learn is by mistakes, right? You know what the best mistakes to learn from are? Other people's mistakes. <laughs> because then we don't have to suffer the pain. We don't have to go through the humiliation, right? And that's what I love. Again, so much of that is recorded for us. And again, for our instruction. So we don't have to make the same mistakes. We don't have to make the mistake that Job did questioning God about why is this happening to me? Now, Job did, you know, to give, a, give him a break, he had three so-called friends for 36 chapters telling him, you know, how everything is bad and all this other kind of stuff, giving all sorts of bad advice. But bottom line, Job has lost everything. Job is at, in the, the throes of, of way worse difficulty than we, will, than we will face. And he cries out basically saying, like, what is the deal, God? And it tells us in chapter 38 of Job, and again, I love the fact that this is recorded for us so that we don't have to be the one, the recipient of God's answer. He says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your, no your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Yikes. You don't want God to start a conversation with you like that, okay? He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding. Who set the measurements since you know? Who stretched out a line on it? And he goes on, chapter 38, not a short chapter. Chapter 39, not a short chapter. Asking all of these questions of Job. Now, I don't know how you picture in your mind Job right now, but I see a quivering tub of goo in the corner. Just. And he answers this way in verse 40, or chapter 40. Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing more. God continues, and to the point that, we're, that we are here in chapter 9 of Romans. The Lord continued, he says, Now gird up your loins like a man, I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And that is, that is where so many people come in this. Trying to condemn God in order to justify themselves. Guys, we have no right to judge God. We have no right to rule anything. Do you understand what a privilege it is that we get to live in God's world? He goes on, he's talking about this, that the, the creation and the creator. He uses this example, the potter in the clay, which by the way, 
we are very close to our part of that illustration, the clay. We're the dirt, the same elements that make up dirt are the same elements that make you and me. The Bible says that out of the dust of the ground, God formed man and breathed life into him. So we're very close to our end of that. Now, the potter, infinitely inferior to the, the creator, but follow along the illustration. And again, it's quite comical if you think about it. The potter, he's making, he's forming this clay, and he's, and he's deciding he's going to make, a, he's gonna make a, a, a wash basin. And it says to him, hey, God, God, wait, hey, hang on, hang on, potter man. <laughs> I don't want to be a wash basin. I want to be a beautiful vase. Now that we think of that, and that's just, that's just crazy. But his illustration is this. Who are we? To answer back to God, why would you, why would you allow this? Why would you do this why, in, in our lives? Now, all of that, again, to underscore the sovereignty of God and to help us to understand, again, that we have no rights in this. The fact that we have life is a gift of God. It is nothing but grace that you are drawing breath right now. On top of that, not only did he give us life, he allows us in his sovereignty, he allows us to make choices. That's grace. He could have made us mindless robots. He didn't. And then on top of all of that, he sent his only son to redeem us, to pay the penalty that we owe for all of the, all of the horrific choices that we made to defy him, to rebel against him. That's infinite grace. But back to the question that, that prompts verse 19, or comes from verse 19, the truth is Pharaoh chose to harden his own heart. God allowed him to make those choices, to harden his own heart. God eventually will finish the process but it's Pharaoh who chose to harden his heart first. And God endured with Pharaoh's decisions and his own hardening of his heart with great patience. We see in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He didn't want Pharaoh to perish. He didn't choose for Pharaoh to suffer in all of this and to perish in all of that. He gave Pharaoh, again, ample opportunity to soften his heart. Instead, he chose to harden his heart. God did tell Moses in Exodus, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He said it was going to happen. But before God did that, it tells us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Several times as we read the Exodus story, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In verse 39, or I'm sorry, 34 of chapter 9, it tells us that at the end of one of the plagues, when, when again Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, hey, uncle, pray to, pray to God that it would stop the hail. It tells us that Moses prayed, God stopped the hail. And it says in verse 34 of chapter 9, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart. Then in chapter 10, verse 1, two verses later, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. So God did ultimately give Pharaoh 
what it was that he was, he was desiring, hardening his heart against God, and again, for God's purposes. And it's not like this, this is alone in Pharaoh. This is, this is the way God works, and he allows us to make these choices. Turn back to chapter one of Romans eight, or, I'm sorry, of Romans, chapter one, verse 18. We looked at this back when we studied the first, the first uh, chapter of Romans. Beginning in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They're the ones suppressing it because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. That's God's part. I've made myself evident to you. I've shown you everywhere that I'm here. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine glory have been clearly seen being understood so that through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God is not at fault at all. He has made it, made it evident and clear. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Notice, they exchanged their decision. Verse 24, therefore, because they made these choices. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28 again, God gave them over. We've talked a lot these last few weeks in chapters eight and nine about the sovereignty of God. But please understand this. The sovereignty of God does not and cannot mean that God chose for man to become sinful. That is, absolutely, it does not mean that. God did not choose for man to become sinful. Pharaoh chose evil. God did not choose it for him. God allowed it. And because of it, he demonstrates, as we see in our verses here, he demonstrates Wrath on the vessels prepared for destruction and mercy on the vessels prepared for glory. Now, Bible students, as we've talked about many times as we go through the word of God, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And as we have shown, and as Paul does numerous times, using other scripture references to, to underscore the truths that we are learning. But as I continually challenge myself and I challenge you, we have to be careful that we don't try to make the word say something that it doesn't. There's an old saying that says, if you torture the word of God long enough, you can make it say whatever you want it to. We have to be careful that we don't, we don't make it say something that is not said in these verses. Wouldn't it be great if right in front of us, in these verses we are looking at, it clearly says that God chooses to grant mercy, but those that harden choose it themselves, and it's not God's choice to harden it? Wouldn't it be great if that were right here? Somebody say yes. Okay, I'm glad you did, because I want to show this to you. A little bit before we do a little grammar lesson, verbs can come in either the active or the passive tense. An active verb means that the subject of the sentence is the one causing the action. A passive verb means that the subject of the sentence is not the one causing the action. Make sense? 
Okay, now, look with me at verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That word prepared is in the passive tense. That means God is not the one preparing the vessel for destruction. Keep reading verse 23. And he did so to make the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Prepared, same word, same verb, different tense. Here it's in the active tense. God is preparing them for glory. We already looked at that in chapter, chapter 8, verse 29, right? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That glory predestined us for that. Here we see it again, prepared beforehand for glory. But please see it again, that in verse 22, it is not God who is preparing them for destruction. It is by their own choices. God alone deserves the credit for the grace and the mercy extended to us for salvation. God alone deserves that. But condemned man is solely responsible for their punishment. God is not. God didn't destine some for this and destine some for glory, destined some for destruction. It is only by God's mercy being extended that any of us are saved. And that to me brings the, the glory again, verses 23 and 24. The, the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Note verse 24, even us. If you're like me, I have a circle on that and out in the margin, even me. Prepared beforehand for glory, a vessel of mercy that again, he would extend mercy to me. And because he's extended mercy to me, and by the gift of salvation through his son, I know that glory is coming. Even us. And the verses that follow, not, not among the Jews only, but also among the Gentiles. And remember, he is writing this, chapter 9, 10, and 11, all about how God has dealt with and will deal with, with Israel. He continues as verse 25, as he also, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the, law will execute, or the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as, a, as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, had left to us a posterity, or seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, notice, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be 
disappointed. Paul clearly lays out again to, to his audience. Again, remember we talked about this last time. The Jewish people thought, oh, hey, if we're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, part of the 12 tribes, we are automatically in. And if you're not part of the 12 tribes, descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on down the line, you're automatically out. That's the way they looked at it. Jews in, Gentiles out. Gentiles exist for one purpose, that's to keep hell hot. Fuel for fire. But Paul says that's not true. And even using their own scriptures, he he quotes Hosea and Isaiah to say that, that that is not it at all. That being a descendant of Abraham does not guarantee it. And by, quite frankly, it's not even a necessity for being a child of God. And those are two hangups for the Jewish people. And we're going to get into this a lot more next week as we transition to chapter 10. Because this is, this is what Paul builds on in chapter 10. But bottom line note. We're talking about God's selection. God's choice. That we are vessels of mercy. Destined for glory. But... Again, in this thing that doesn't seem to go together with it, notice it says that we attain this by faith. By faith. Mercy extended, but it must be received by the individual in faith. Now, faith in this, that becomes the stumbling stone. And again, we're going to get into greater detail with that next week. A stumbling stone to the Jews, quite frankly, a stumbling stone to to all mankind that reject it. The greatest obstacle to salvation is (laughs) self-righteousness, that I somehow need to fully understand this all or I need to somehow earn it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Guys, again, this is, this is big stuff. These are things that, again, we put this together and we can't fully wrap our minds around this. What we've talked about today, the sovereignty of God in chapter 9, again, how this all works, why these choices made, why those choices made. We're never going to understand that. We can never fully balance this, this thing that God, sovereign, almighty God, chose, foreknew, predestined us as believers. But there is a re- it says that he gave us a free will and we must choose. How does God's sovereignty and our free will go together? I don't know. I don't know. I can study it the rest of my life. I can drive myself crazy or I can embrace the truth of it and all that comes with it. When we just embrace it in faith, which is what we have to do, the Bible tells us that we will not be disappointed. It's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Remember, again, God, the power of God, all-powerful. The wisdom of God, all-knowing, eternal, outside of time, knows the beginning from the end because he is the beginning and the end. Because of that, we can take, again, great comfort, joy in this. If we would just get over the fact that, oh man, I got to figure this out. I'm really wrestling with this. I'm, I'm really bothered by this and just embrace the glory of it all. I came across this quote yesterday. I love this. 
when once we realize that we can never think of anything our father will forget, worry becomes impossible. I am never going to come up with something that God forgot. Did it ever dawn on you that nothing ever dawns on God? (laughs) He knows it all. He knows what we need before we ask. He has what we need before we need it. Psalm 84.11 tells us that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. When we, when we come to difficult times in our life and we look around and we see things that we don't understand, and guys, that's going to happen every day. Every day. Things are going to happen that we don't fully understand. We need to fall back on the things that we do understand. And some of the things that we do understand, we can't fully comprehend. And I know that that even, that even is hard to grab a hold of. But we can understand that God is sovereign without fully comprehending it. And we can embrace it and accept it, accept it in faith. So that when we face those difficulties and we face the trials in our lives and we face these, these things that don't make sense, that we can't understand, we can say, you know what? I do understand, though, that almighty creator God is in control. And I can understand that he is only good. He is never unjust, never unrighteous because of his very character in nature. It's not that God chooses to be just. He is just. He can't be unjust. And I know that he loves me. How do I know? Because he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. How do I know he loves me? Because he demonstrated his love toward me and that while I was yet a sinner, when I wanted nothing to do with him, Jesus died for me. He gave his life for mine. Why would we want to change any of that? Just so that I can bring it down to my level? No way. I like Paul count all things, my understanding, my limited ability to grab a hold of things, everything, I count it all to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you're here today and you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, I want to plead with you right now. Do not harden your heart. The reason that you are still breathing right now is that God is patient with you. He does not want you to perish. He does not want you to go into eternity facing his wrath forever in hell. He wants you to go into eternity in the the presence of his love in heaven forever. That is his desire for you, but he's given you a choice. You have to make that choice. It's up to you. Don't harden your heart today. Surrender it to Jesus. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we are amazed by you. All-powerful, all-knowing. 
eternal creator God. And we thank you for the grace that you have extended to us, the fact that you've given us life, that you've given us breath, that you've allowed us to live in your world despite our regular tendency to defy you. We thank you for the fact that you give us the opportunity to make choices. You didn't make us mindless robots. We thank you that you created us in your image. And in spite of that, Lord, we still make so many, so many mistakes. And for so much of our life, Lord, we, we ran against you. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for, for the gift of salvation that comes only through your son. We thank you for redeeming us for paying our penalty, for paying our price. Again, if that is you here today and you've never given your heart over to the Lord, you've never trusted in him, I invite you to follow Jesus today. There's not a formula. It is a matter of responding to the Holy Spirit in your heart right now. Confessing sin. You're not going to tell God anything he doesn't already know. Confessing sin means you agree with him. You agree that your life is sinful. You agree that you've, you've not followed him. You've not pleased him in the way that you've lived your life. But you confess that to him and you, you confess your need for a savior because you can't fix it. But Jesus did. Jesus, God himself, stepped out of heaven and lived a perfect sinless life and then gave that life on the cross for you, shedding his perfect blood for you. You embrace him as Lord and Savior of your life. God, we, we are all again amazed by you, the mercy that you extend toward us. And Lord, we worship you now because you are worthy of all of our worship and praise. We praise you because you are the sovereign king of the universe. We praise you because you gave your life for us. Lord, our prayer is that that praise would forever be on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.